So welcome to this podcast where we'll be discussing the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19 disease. I'm Radha McGrath, a consultant anaesthetist at Barts Health London, and today we'll be discussing COVID-19 airway management principles with Professor Tim Cook, consultant anaesthetist and intensivist at Royal United Hospitals Bath. Professor Tim Cook, welcome. Hi, Ravi. Uh, Tim, Europe is now the epicentre of a global pandemic, um, and just a few days ago, the PM introduced the most draconian national restrictions not seen since World War II. Um, you've been instrumental in the formation of a single online hub comprising the four bodies that regulate us um, in East Sand Intensivists in the UK, namely the ICS, FICM, the Association of Anaesthetists and the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Um, and also you recently participated in an excellent webinar where you discussed the epidemiology of COVID-19 COVID as well as airway management principles. Um, it's, it's really these airway management principles that you outlined in your recent paper that I'd like to discuss with you today. Um, but perhaps firstly, do you think you could just briefly discuss the epidemiology of COVID-19? Sure. Um, shall I start with that hub? So firstly, I think that's a, a very useful resource. Uh, it is a time when we should be collaborating and a time when we should be sharing information as much as we can. And that's uh, clinically and organisationally. And I think it's really great that the, those four organisations have come together. Um, and in the formation of these guidelines, DAS has, has joined them, the Gregory Society. Uh, and so I think that's a really positive step and something that we sh should continue uh, during what will be difficult times. In terms of the epidemiology, um, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virologist, uh, but it's clear that uh, this is a uh, global threat. Uh, it's called COVID-19 because uh, WHO was informed of the existence of an of a, of a unknown uh, cluster of, of probably viral pneumonias uh, in Wuhan, in Hubei, in China. Um, and since then, the story has uh, pretty much unrolled. So we're pushing 200,000 uh, cases uh, globally uh, in, a pretty, in essentially every country in the world. There's now an infection. Uh, different centers are at different, so different countries are at different stages of their epidemic surge. Unfettered, that epidemic surge seems to last for about three months. And, and um, it's fascinating today. Today's the 19th of uh, March um, and Wuhan, um, or rather China, has announced that it's had no new um, infections. So that is probably three and a half months uh, from uh, when it started. Their, their epidemic probably started at the beginning of uh, December, and now three and a half months, they've had no new uh, cases from China. They've had some cases that are imported, but no new um, uh, internal cases. So there is a beginning, a middle, and an end to this, uh, depending on how the epidemic is managed. Uh, this, the curve may go on longer than three and a half months but with a lower peak. In the UK perhaps it's worth saying that um, we are probably uh, two months behind Wuhan, uh, three or four weeks behind Italy um, and what that gives us is time and I think there are two really important things. Uh, the first is that we have time, a very short amount of time uh, to uh, make preparations uh, and to learn from what has happened in uh, those other countries. The fact that the NHS is a single organisation also is a great strength uh, uh, in this country. I think we can make uh, decisions centrally 
in terms of procurement and responses and information um, uh, which uh, can be enacted throughout the country. And I think at this time of what is national crisis, um, the NHS uh, will give us the best opportunity to respond as best we can. That's probably, you know, what I'd say about the epidemiology. I don't know if you have any other specific questions. No, I think it's, a, it's pretty scary times. And from what we've been hearing from the daily PM um, uh, meetings, we're at a kind of inflection point, aren't we, of, of sharp acceleration in the number of new cases. So it, it's really now is the time that everybody needs to be prepared uh, and know what they're doing before they manage a case. Yeah, Ravi, if I can just say on that, I think one of the things is that there's the curve that people may have seen on the television or in, in um, uh, reports that sort of epidemic curve, but that's probably made up of lots of smaller epidemic curves. So locally, people have, will have their epidemics at different, different times. Um, we've seen Wuhan, Iran and, uh, Iran and India, and then uh, Europe. But within Europe, the, the uh, epidemic is occurring at slightly different times. And that will occur within the country as well. So um, one part of the country may be uh, at, at the peak of its or the inflection point or the peak of its epidemic, a slightly different time from others, although they will uh, eventually sort of um, um, meld into each other. Thank, thanks for that, um, Tim. I think we could talk generalisation for a, a long time, but I want to talk specifically about airway management, and, and that's the title of the paper you've recently um, uh, co-authored. Why is COVID-19 a particular risk to airway managers? I think there are two issues. Um, first, the, well, there are multiple issues, but the two main ones are that uh, the predominant um, illness that patients get uh, is a severe uh, viral pneumonia, uh, which requires intensive care treatment. So while, and there's a broad spectrum of disease, so it's really important. We, because we're doctors and we worry about sick patients, um, it's important to remember that uh, at least 80% of the people who, who get this infection will have mild illness um, and will not require hospital admission. It's possible that the number is actually several fold higher than that because we simply don't see some of the infections that people don't even know they've had it. Uh, it may be that there's an eightfold uh, higher rate of people not knowing they've had it, which would mean the actual instance of severity would be lower. But of those people that we know uh, that get the infection, broadly speaking, 20% of, of them come to hospital. And depending on which report you read, uh, somewhere between uh, five and 10%, uh, it's probably two and 10% end up coming to intensive care and uh, with a significant proportion of those then requiring invasive ventilation. You talk about a, a pyramid of mortalities when you were discussing epidemiology, and we, we talk about the ones that we would be getting involved with are the, the known cases and the severe cases. Um, and, and you talk about the ascertainment rate. I mean, what, what's the implication of that for us as airway managers? Okay, so in terms of the ascertainment rate, so there are lots of figures that, that fly around. So I'll just try and synthesize those quickly. Um, so... Uh, if we have a hundred patients uh, who we have who have uh, who clinically have a coronavirus and have been identified with it, there may be a total of eight hundred patients who actually have been infected, um, of whom we only know a hundred. Mm. So the ascertainment rate then would be one in eight or twelve percent. Of those hundred patients, 
roughly 15 to 20 will go to hospital and uh, depending on the uh, quality of care the preparedness um, both nationally and at an institutional level uh, maybe one to three percent of those patients might die so the proportion of patients who die in terms of cases we know about is termed the case fatality rate and the proportion of patients um, who die from the infection is the infection fatality rate. So in this model, we've started with 800, decreasing to 200, uh, sorry, decreasing to 100, uh, and then we have 15 and maybe one to three deaths. So the case fatality rate here is 3%, but if we've missed uh, 88% of the cases, the actual infection mortality rate is eightfold lower than that and perhaps around 0.3 to 0.5. So, so we're going to be seeing the sickest patients um, presenting to us. So just going back to the, the risk to anaesthetists and intensivists and those involved in the airway management, can we talk a little bit more specifically about that and, and ways of perhaps mitigating that risk? Yeah, so the, the correct answer to the, the two challenges uh, which you asked earlier was first, it's a challenge because these patients are sick. Um, of course, DAS and the Intensive Care Society and others uh, produced guidelines for managing the airway in the critically ill uh, in 2018. Um, intensivists will be familiar with these, but anaesthetists may not. And then the second and really important thing is that there is, of course, a risk to healthcare workers of being infected during procedures. And airway management is certainly um, front and centre in terms of focus of that risk. Um, whether that risk is as, is as significant as uh, people are believing um, is, is actually up for debate. Um, but those are the two central problems. One, severe pneumonia requiring often urgent intubation in the critical patient. And second, uh, performing airway management while protecting uh, all those involved in that process. There, there are specific uh, procedures out there, aerosol generating the procedures that are the most risky. If you were to rank them, Tim, what would you say was the, the riskiest to perhaps the, the least risk patient uh, procedure? Yeah, so it's worth remembering how the virus is spread. It's spread by droplet infection. That means quite large, um, uh, well, droplets um, of uh, above five microns, which tend, which will, which will fall to the ground, having having left the patient's airway, and this is the pre the predominant form of infection. And that's why, because they only spread about three feet. If you're uh, two meters away from the patient, you shouldn't get droplet infection. Uh, the other um, predominant mode of infection is contact. So if a patient has coughed on their bed or their bed rails or uh, the drip stand or the floor or uh, or, the, or around the toilet, then touching that area also increases risk of infection. And I think this fomite infection should not be underestimated. The, 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 these aerosol generating procedures um, lead to um, virus in the air for up to 20 minutes after, after they've occurred. And um, airway management is, uh, again, important in that. It's worth mentioning that intubation uh, is considered to be um, high risk, tracheostomy is considered to be high risk and therefore presumably front of neck airway, mask ventilation, NIV, uh, high flow uh, and, and, and open tracheal suction. So those are the main ones. I'd include in that bronchoscopy. Um, high flow nasal oxygen is worth mentioning. 
um, the evidence for it being aerosol generating is limited. The evidence for it being 100% safe is absent, and it will be absent. So there's a couple of studies uh, which have looked at high flow nasal oxygen in terms of distribution of um, gases, and the spread is relatively limited, particularly with newer machines. Uh, there's a study looking at bacterial spread in patients with pneumonia. Again, the spread is very limited. Um, uh, and there's a meta-analysis, but unfortunately only used one study and suggested a limited risk to healthcare workers. So there's a lot of, lot of concern about high-flow uh, nasal oxygen. It is designated as a, as a, uh, by uh, Public Health England as an um, aerosol-generating procedure, but the risk is probably low. There are other reasons not to use high-flow nasal oxygen, particularly for prolonged periods in these patients, and that is, firstly, uh, that it probably just delays intubation in patients who need it in these circumstances, and secondly, uh, that it uses extraordinarily high volumes of oxygen, and this puts, uh, creates a threat to the oxygen supplies in the hospital. And I think those latter causes, uh, or those latter reasons, are greater than the issue of, high, uh, than the issue of um, transmission of infection. Tim, you talk about um, an SAS-type approach uh, to managing these patients, um, safe, accurate, and swift. Um, other than what you've mentioned already, what other components do they include? Yeah, I, and you know, one can argue that you, you, you can't compress um, airway management into um, a single three-word phrase. Um, but on the other hand, people are going to be really busy. And I think if people can get this in their mind, safe, accurate, and swift, SAS, in and out without being noticed, then I think this is perhaps um, uh, maybe useful. So safety is for staff and patient. So protection, appropriate precautions for all staff um, and doing uh, all the treatments um, or all the steps of airway management um, that are appropriate to maintain patient safety. These are profoundly hypoxic patients who can come to harm from intubation. We know that 2% of patients roughly in critical, in critical care um, arrest on intubation and at least 10% get profound hypoxia. So these are, these are risky um, situations. Accuracy, you describe that as avoiding unreliable, unfamiliar or repeated techniques. So it's kind of getting it right first time using a technique that you are good with. Um, ideally a technique which is proven to be effective. This is not a time for inexperienced uh, airway managers. It's not a time for uh, using a, a, a technique which you don't know because you think it's clever. And it's not a time for uh, using an unreliable te which, technique which will um, lead to repeated techniques. And that includes primary and rescue techniques. And, and then SWIFT is, um, is, is about being timely without rush or delay. So in China, some of the evidence is that the patients um, got intubated too late um, and their survival was um, hampered by that. Um, and when the actual airway management is done, it needs to be done in a methodical, precise, uh, structured way, but also using techniques which mean that the um, airway manager and those staff involved are not exposed to excessive um, duration of procedures and, and exposure to the virus. So safe, accurate, and swift. So Tim, this consensus paper, these guidelines, uh, principles that you've uh, put out, 
other than advice you've had from PICM, uh, ICM and DAS, um, what are they based on any evidence? I know evidence is perhaps scanty at the moment. There are lots of case reports from China, from Italy. Uh, is it based on any evidence or is it more of a consensus statement? It's, um, I would describe it as a consensus document, a, 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 a rapid release consensus document based on uh, fundamental airway principles adapted um, according to um, available evidence. So what have we done? So I was involved in the critical care guidelines um, group uh, in 2016 to 18. I think we took two or maybe three years to produce those guidelines. These guidelines were written in two days. They were signed off by the, four, by the five organizations in the next 48 hours. Uh, they, were they were revised, submitted to a journal and published. Um, so the preprint publication on the website appeared after six days and the publication would probably take a total of 10 days from first being asked to do them. So there's an element, so we want them to be timely. We didn't want to rush, we didn't want delay. Um, uh, but it's a real challenge and a lot of people worked really hard to get that out. It, it, it's very is there, an, is there an evidence base? Um, there's, interestingly enough, I've, um, there was a paper that came out last night um, from anesthesiology describing airway experiences in Wuhan. Um, having read that very carefully, I think um, the fundamental principles that we've used um, are absolutely right. And I think the quality of the document is, is pretty good. We have looked at uh, experience from uh, the SARS epidemic, uh, particularly um, uh, around um, PPE and safe use of PPE, um, personal protective equipment. Um, uh, and we've used fundamental principles, um, absolutely extrapolating um, where necessary. Um, but I am comfortable that the document produced is um, pragmatic, practical, um, and currently up to date. I think this is going to be the go-to um, piece of piece of information that uh, your everyday anaesthetist is going to be looking at. And, and this is, I just wanted to move on from that actually for... Can I make one point about that, Ravi? I think, yes. I think you know, we live in a, in a world of social media. Anaesthetists and intensivists are people who seek solutions to problems. And with this impending uh, crisis, um, in probably most hospitals in the country, individuals were drawing up their own plans and that's continuing in other areas and um, many of us felt that there was a need for some from, for some national guidance and the purpose of that is not to sort of trample on individuals um, innovative spirit but um, certainly some of the uh, early suggestions that I saw were, were they were there was great variability uh, they included some techniques which we would not recommend uh, there were some errors in some of them. So having an, uh, a national guidance, which has been peer reviewed by quite a lot of groups and quite a lot of people, and people have looked at the evidence, is likely to improve reliability and consistency uh, to avoid um, uh, gross errors um, and um, on balance. And, and of course, when people move from one hospital to another uh, to improve consistency. So that, that's the real aim. I think, I think that's absolutely right. But also, there's, there's definitely going to be a blurring of the lines between anaesthesia and ICM. Um, 
as a jobbing anaesthetist or intensivist, a trainee or a consultant, if I'm called upon to manage um, a sick COVID-19 patient, critically ill, that requires intubation, could we briefly run through um, sort of from PPE intubation to extubation? I know a lot of the detail is in the paper, and I would refer people to the hub for that. But if, as a, if we could just roughly go through that, would that be all right? If we start with perhaps PPE briefly, Tim. Yeah, so PPE is of, of, of great um, importance. Um, I think there's pretty clear evidence, both from the SARS epidemic and also from um, what's happened in China, that when PPE is uh, used effectively, uh, that the rates of uh, infection are low, um, of healthcare workers are low. Um, but it's really important to remember that, that people get fi fixated on the um, physical attributes of the PPE equipment, what they're actually wearing. Uh, the PHE guidance for intubation is a long-sleeved water-repellent gown, an FFP3 mask or equivalent, uh, gloves and eyewear. Um, it kind of stops there. And then lots of people have discussed whether they should wear more or less. I'm not going to focus on that discussion. Okay, what I would emphasize is that three pairs of gloves. Yeah, what I would emphasize is that um, it's simply part of a system. So the, the PPE is, is um, only part of several mechanisms which can keep um, clinicians safe. And that includes um, hand washing and, and self hygiene, um, appropriate isolation of patients, uh, proper cleaning of rooms, uh, minimizing the number of people who go in and out, um, use of PPE, use of buddies, using checklists to ensure that PPE is donned correctly, uh, uh, touching kit, touching um, things inside the room as little as possible, uh, disposal of, uh, of waste and uh, used equipment and proper decontamination of equipment. So all those things are important. And the kit that is worn is simply one part of it. My reading, personally, my personal reading suggests that the PPE, so the PHE guidance on PPE um, is sufficient. Um, but individuals will make their local uh, and personal decisions. You've included an emergency trachea intubation checklist, which has been modified for COVID-19 on the hub, which I think is a really useful uh, um, checklist um, for people to, to use because it mentions all of those things. You mentioned personnel. Um, Tim, who should be involved in intubation? Yeah, at, at first look, the um, checklist is rather daunting. Um, but actually, if you sit down with it for a cup of coffee, with a cup of coffee for 10 minutes and go through it, most of it is simply laying out what what would normally be done but it emphasizes it's got so it's got five columns um, about um, and the first and last are about uh, protecting staff by um, being absolutely assiduous to um, uh, infection control uh, matters before and after intubation in terms of staff, we've recommended that there are three, uh, while you want to minimise the number of staff involved, also you don't want to strip it down to the point that, that, te that um, techniques are not safe. So we've um, recommended three um, members of staff inside the room, so that is a team leader and intubator with the most appropriate, i.e. the best airway manager, 
uh, taking on intubation and not expecting to receive help from anybody else. Uh, the second member of the team applies cricoid force and uh, assists, uh, helps with equipment, and the third member of the team gives drugs and monitors the patient. Um, I've seen an Italian protocol which involves only two um, uh, people in the room, both doctors, and it may be that as times evolve and the pressures increase, it may not be possible to have three people, but I think certainly in the first instance, we should aim to have three people in the room. The um, fourth person is a runner who is outside. Uh, we have not suggested that they um, are in PPE or immediately ready to come in, but they are able to alert those outside if uh, further assistance is needed. And from a, a point of equipment, is there any change in the equipment we use for these patients? Um, let's, well, let's go through it step by step. In terms of preoxygenation, uh, probably the most useful circuits uh, for preoxygenation are the Mapleson C, commonly known as the water circuit, uh, and uh, an anaesthetic circuit. And some of these intubations will take place in theatres. Both should have an HME um, viral filter attached, so it's a standard HME. Um, and these are preferable to um, uh, a self-inflating bag in terms of dispersion of, of virus. Um, everything should be prepared outside the room and ready. So after pre so for pre-oxygenation, we would recommend that um, uh, once the patient is anesthetized, um, CPAP is applied gently to maintain oxygenation um, and mask ventilation is avoided unless necessary. If mask ventilation is required, that that's generally done with two hands. We recommend a V-grip uh, and there are images of that in the, in the paper uh, to improve the seal while a second person does the um, uh, bagging. A Goodell should be put in at that time to um, uh, keep the airway as patent as possible and aim to have uh, mask ventilation, which is, if needed, um, two-handed, two-person, uh, with low flows and low airway pressures uh, to reduce the amount of aerosol generation that this happens. Uh, anesthesia should be prompt, so modified rapid sequence induction, providing there's somebody who's skilled enough to do cricoid force, they should apply it. If there's problems, they should take it off. Uh, the drugs, um, we've recommended ketamine and a muscle relaxant. I would generally use ketamine and rocuronium. Um, there are concerns about cardiovascular collapse, but other drugs could be used. Um, I would give the paralysis early. Now, how early that is, um, is up for discussion. But the aim is to have the patient anesthetized, not coughing, as rapidly as possible. Uh, we then recommend moving on to video laryngoscopy. So all those discussions about is a video laryngoscope your first backup, or do you perhaps use it for first for, is your first attempt? We've cut through all those and said use a video laryngoscope. Tim, can I'm I just aware ask that you about that. Just yeah, sure. About, um, whether for most of our equipment is, is, is single use, but when it comes to video laryngoscopy, some of us have choice over single or reusable equipment. Um, how should we choose in this specific instance? Yeah, the, 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 this is discussed um, in some length um, in the paper. It's a, it's a difficult situation. So the current PHE guidance 
states that uh, direct laryngoscopes um, uh, should be thrown away if they're single use or decontaminated if they're um, reusable. Uh, and then goes on to say that all video laryngoscopes should be single use. Um, that doesn't make, uh, not logical to me. Um, uh, we emphasize in that, in terms of SAS, uh, the A being accurate, that techniques should be uh, likely to be successful um, and um, reliable. And video laryngoscopy uh, fits, uh, fits the bill for intubation in the critical ill. And so if people have single use laryngoscopes and want to use those, then I think that's perfectly appropriate. And in fact, probably to be preferred. But some people will only have reusable video laryngoscopes um, and appropriate or standard decontamination uh, should be fine uh, for those devices. But of course, it needs to be careful and precise. Uh, we think you should use the equipment that you are familiar with um, and that is most likely to work. That will vary according to what you've trained on in your local in your location. And Tim, if whilst you're doing this, these from all accounts, these patients do saturate quite dramatically. Are there any extra, you mentioned uh, use of gentle CPAP, are there any other recruitment maneuvers or any other oxygenation maneuvers we can employ if we're not going to be using high flow nasal oxygen? Yeah, so I, I think it's difficult. So the, um, the Chinese have certainly been using high flow nasal oxygen and NIV uh, prior to intubation. Uh, they accept the, the uh, limit limitations or challenges of this in terms of uh, patient safety, or oh, sorry, uh, clinician safety. Um, and I think that's true for the Italians as well. We've recommended that they aren't used in the first instance. Um, as time moves on, you may find that it's just unavoidable. Low flow um, nasal oxygen was much discussed. Uh, and we neither um, recommend or recommend against it. Uh, some individuals on the consensus group had concerns about um, uh, aerosol generation, but based on the evidence of being pretty much lacking for high flow nasal oxygen and the much lower flows um, with uh, standard nasal, nasal cannulae, so sort of less than five liters per minute, I'd have thought those concerns are limited. If I was uh, intubating a profoundly hypoxic patient, I would put nasal cannulae on. And so we, we managed to maintain their oxygenation to a certain degree. We're using a disposable video laryngoscope. Now, what happens if we encounter unexpected difficulty intubating this patient? Because some of our guidelines are, are not that applicable in this situation. Sure. So um, just finishing that last question, I think one of the things the Chinese aim to, in, in their paper, to intubate within 60 seconds. So I think that... that pre-oxygenation, rapid preparation, um, uh, anesthetic technique, which enables very rapid um, muscle paralysis so you can get on with the airway, um, and apneic oxygenation, more important. If the airway becomes difficult, um, essentially one will revert to either face mask ventilation or a second generation of supraglottic airway yeah, in, the, in, the, in the style of the vortex um, as described by the Australians. Uh, we emphasize the second generation supraglottic airway because uh, it's likely to have a better seal. Uh, for some of these patients, though not all, will have low lung compliance and a first generation uh, supraglottic airway like a classic LMA is likely to fail. And um, 
that may alternate between face mask ventilation, um, which again should be two person with adjuncts at low flow and low pressure if possible. If um, the airway is maintained uh, with that second generation supermatic airway, then there are three choices. Can I wake this patient up? Which in most intensive care settings, the answer will be no, uh, but there may be uh, settings where it is feasible. Uh, number two, um, should I intubate through the supermatic airway? And individuals will make, have to make that decision themselves. Or number three, um, should I proceed straight to a front of neck airway? And I suspect in these patients, proceeding to a front of neck airway may occur um, rather earlier uh, than um, uh, in previous cohorts. Okay, and most of these patients, once where they're either for uh, an operation or if they're intubated for ICU, most of them will go to ICU. However, if they require extubation either in theatres or in ICU, are there any particular uh, precautions we should be taking? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a section um, on extubation techniques uh, that can be used. And of course, the DAS has published guidance on extubation uh, for airway management in the past. So the nature of extubation on critical care, and I think they're slightly different, the extubation on critical care um, often will be followed by a lot of coughing, coughing and spluttering, possibly hypoxia, um, a period of time on nasal high flow, this is normally, um, and um, a significant proportion of people who get re-intubated in the first 24 hours. Obviously there's an aim to try and avoid that, and there are all sorts of um, uh, things that can be done. I'm not going to mention all of them, um, but amongst those um, include probably um, uh, maybe delaying intubation, the possibility, the possibility um, and, until we're fairly certain that extubation will be successful. There's the possibility of um, uh, performing tracheostomies as part of liberating patients from, uh, from ventilation uh, to uh, enable this to be more, more reliably successful. Can I just... Uh, just we can borrow. We can probably borrow from anaesthesia, um, and insert a supraglottic airway at the time of extubation to minimise coughing. And there are certain drugs which may be useful at extubation. So IV lidocaine um, or low dose uh, opiates or uh, dexamethasone. Um, but I, but I, I guess one of the problems is is that we're we're trying to solve a problem which we don't normally have, and we're, we're potentially introducing techniques which are unfamiliar with all the limitations that that, that has. So I think it is a, it's a complex area. And I hope, um, yeah. Tim, for, for most of these patients uh, will either have a, a, a normal airway, and but there'll be a small selection that may have a predicted difficult airway. Um, given the recent um, awake trachea intubation guidelines, is any of that applicable to these patients or given what you were saying? Um, about the risks involved with patients coughing, do we avoid awake trachea intubation? Uh, as a general principle, uh, you know, if I was intubating one of these patients, I wouldn't want to sit there and enable them to cough copiously at me while I sprayed local anaesthetic in their, uh, in, in their airway or did a cricothyroid puncture. Um, and so calm procedures, um, uh, minimizing coughing and aerosol generation are important. And that means that the, the, the threshold for doing the wake technique is probably raised um, and uh, less, uh, less, 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 less likely to be used. Certainly the Italians have used it um, uh, as an early technique. Um, 
I guess the options would include um, accepting, and it might be worth at this point just mentioning airway assessment. So we've emphasized uh, what's known as the Makotcha airway assessment. This is the only validated uh, risk tool for airway assessment in the critically ill. And that's emphasized in one of the figures. I'm not gonna go, um, go into it, um, but one of the figures in the paper describes exactly what Makotcha is and how you assess the airway very simply. Uh, to, uh, to predict difficulty. In terms of predictive difficulty airway management, the options include um, preparing for, a general, for, for rapid sequence induction, accepting that you may have to um, proceed perhaps in two steps um, from attempt to insert a supraglottic airway uh, to um, a front of neck airway um, and being ready and prepared to do those things. And the alternative is, is uh, very careful PPE in preparation and skilled administration of sedation and local anaesthesia with a wake technique. Uh, Tim, let's say we managed to successfully intubate the patient. Are, is there any evidence from, from the Chinese or the Italians of the kind of problems that we might encounter post tracheal intubation? And there's sort of any troubleshooting uh, points that we can uh, hear from you? Um, yeah, I think so for but firstly, I've just been looking at a, at a paper which is not, not uh, submitted yet, but a relatively high rate of pneumothorax in this series that I've looked at, um, almost 10% rate of pneumothorax, and that's one thing to look out for. Uh, and avoiding uh, high pressure uh, procedures after intubation, the lungs are pretty um, uh, ropey at the point that many patients have intubated. And similarly, quite a high mortality rate in the first 24 hours after intubation. And of course, that will depend on the point at which they're extubated. That's why intubated. The, the second thing I'd emphasize is, um, which again, the uh, checklist emphasizes, is very careful um, uh, tube and uh, ventilator circuit management. So this might be slightly less familiar to those um, anesthetists who haven't done critical care for a long time. So the aim would be, so firstly, having intubated the patient, your capnograph, your waveform capnograph should be on. Uh, you should be confirming they are intubated uh, with waveform capnography. And if they don't have a trace, even if they're in cardiac arrest, you have to assume the tube is not in the right place. Uh, no trace, wrong place. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, the aim should be to uh, inflate the cuff uh, and seal the cuff before starting ventilating. All connections should be push-twist. Um, it's likely that many people will choose to use an HME, um, uh, both filter and humidifier, rather than a wet circuit. Um, on the grounds that a wet, if you use a wet circuit, that tends to mean that the, um, the exhaled um, gases are throughout the circuit, and therefore, uh, if there is an accidental disconnection, the ventilator will blow um, virus throughout the room. So using an HME close to the patient um, will, uh, will mean that the circuit itself should be clean if there's an accidental disconnection. Is there anything else we should do to eliminate accident? Yeah, yeah. That, that, there's a couple of other things. That, that said, um, the, um, you shouldn't use a wet circuit and an HME at the same time because the HME will get wet, blocked, and that may be uh, not noticed, it will cause airway obstruction. 
all those connections should be pushed and twisted together as, as we learned for FRCA part one. Um, when airway maneuvers are performed, uh, the ventilator should be paused and stopped so no gas is flowing and the tracheal tube should be clamped during that maneuver. Uh, so there's quite a lot to do to, 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 you know, after intubation to check that everything's okay. And Tim, for, uh, this is for patients who are coming to ICU, coming to uh, theatres um, for intubation to perhaps return to an ICU environment. What about for the urgent, the life-threatening cases that are still requiring anaesthesia? I mean, at this time, should we be taking any other precautions? Yeah, so the, the, the Public Health uh, England has produced uh, guidance about PPE for theatres as well as um, uh, for initiation intensive care. Um, and there isn't time to go into those in details, um, but it's generally deemed that intensive care, um, because of the severity of the illness and because of the nature of procedures that are done, is a higher risk area for aerosol generation and airborne um, risk of infection than theatres. And after the patient is anaesthetized in theatre, um, uh, precautions can be reduced for 20 minutes after intubation. Of course, whether all these patients, firstly, should we avoid general anaesthesia and do more regional? Secondly, should we, um, uh, do we have to intubate everybody or should we be using high quality sucrose airways? both for um, uh, maintenance and extubation. These are, these are broader questions which there probably isn't time to discuss, but, worth, but, they, but they need thinking about. I'm sorry, Tom, I've had you talking for a long time now. If we just start to perhaps wrap things up, um, yep. what would be your kind of takeaway um, um, points? So let, I, I'm, I'm just gonna open up a presentation that, let me see, so, there was a beautifully written bit in the, in the paper that was produced yesterday. Um, uh, it was published in Anesthesiology uh, and it's, it's entitled Intubation and Ventilation Amid the, the COVID-19 Outbreak. Um, and there's a short paragraph which struck me, which, which reads, um, it's common to see a patient who starts with dangerously low saturation, a quickly decline after loss of spontaneous breathing, followed by slow recovery with manual face mask ventilation. Due to strict infection control and urgency of intubation, a careful airway evaluation may not be possible. PPE makes the performance of, of the procedure clumsy, which may easily compromise the intubation process. Strict infection and traffic control restrict backup supplies and help us from being readily available <coughs> when they are needed. The psychological pressure related to concerns of cross-infection challenges the providers, which may make an otherwise easy intubation complicated. And they summarize it by saying preparedness minimizes the chance of cross-infection and improves the chance of smooth intubation. So a safe and accurate and a swift approach to managing all of these COVID-19 right, patients. Um, Professor Tim Cook, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you. Ravi Bagrat, it's a pleasure. <laughs>